1 Samuel chapter number 4 this morning. We'll read in verse number 1 a story of a failure of the children of Israel where they just did not have the right concept of God and they just decided to do things their own way. 1 Samuel chapter number 4 verse number 1 and the Bible says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against uh, the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hands of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they may bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the Ark of the Lord was come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods. These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought. And Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. What happens when we throw God right in the middle of our problem? See, I, I'm of the persuasion, and I, I don't have a great faith, uh, but I'm of the persuasion that there is not a problem in this room this morning that is too big for God to handle. I just believe that uh, with men things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. I don't believe there's any limitation to how big God is or the, the mountains that He can help us overcome. I just believe we have a mountain-moving, water-walking, uh, just awesome kind of God. But God doesn't want to be put in the middle of your problems. He doesn't want to be thrust into the things that we create for ourselves. It's not that he can't fix things, but God wanted to be there before the problem ever began. A lot of times we get ourselves into problems, and if God had been there, we'd have never gotten into the problem in the first place. 
God does not want to be in the middle of our problem. I think that if you watch TV for any length of time, you'll come to the conclusion that there are really only three kinds of commercials represented on TV right now. There are beer commercials, which can I just say have gotten worse as they've aged. They're just not as funny as they used to be. I mean, remember the old frogs, the bud. You remember those? I mean, those they were clever, but now nah, they're not any good. Um, plus, they represent something that is wicked and abominable, and the Bible says that it's not wise. So, I don't love beer commercials. There's another kind of commercial that just I don't under, fully understand. It's car commercials. How It is ridiculous how many car commercials are on. I wonder what they think the effect that they have on us is. Has anybody ever been watching TV on a Sunday afternoon and a commercial for a Chevrolet come on and you say, Huh, they've won four consecutive J.D. Power & Associates awards. <laughs> Honey, pack up the kids. We're going to go buy a Chevy. But man, you just see car commercial after car commercial after car commercial and... And man, it's just, it's kind of crazy. And then the third kind of commercial that kind of I see most of are insurance commercials. And can I just say, they're all right. I think for the most part, those are the funniest commercials on TV. But it's a unique strategy that they've chosen to employ because at the end of the day, they're basically saying, we want you to choose us to help you fix your problem. It's an odd way to advertise, really. And in every company, no matter what their sales pitch is, no matter what their slogan is, they're all trying to help you realize why you should trust them. For instance, uh, Allstate has a commercial. They're some of my favorite commercials on TV. It's a guy, and they picture him as mayhem. And maybe you've seen those commercials, but mayhem is always in the, in, in the situation and he's causing mayhem. And, and he says, if you don't have your cut rate insurance, if you have your cut rate insurance, it may not help you fix things like this. I saw one this morning and it was, he said, I'm your blind spot. He says, I help, prote- I help hide big things from you. And this poor little lady's driving down the road and she looks in his, her mirror and there he is and he goes, You're good! And coming up beside her is this giant truck and she wrecks. Another one I saw, he he was a deer in the woods. He said, I'm a deer doing deer things, eating leaves in the woods. Then I come across this road and I step onto it. And then I freeze in your headlights because that's what deer do. (laughs) And uh, I think that's clever. Uh, there's another series of commercials that I think are pretty funny. They're the farmer's insurance commercials. And, and they kind of start out and they say, uh, we've seen everything, so we know how to cover just about anything. And, and they go through all these things. And uh, the most recent one that I've seen is this new par- these new parents are coming out of the hospital and they have their baby and it's asleep. And they're trying to be real quiet and they're, you know, opening the door real softly and setting the baby in the car seat. And, you know, those car seats, there's no good way to put them in. They always jolt in and they, they get past that and the baby stays asleep. And then they start to pull off and uh, uh, some chain with some uh, uh, pipes had 
that were used like as a, as a barricade had attached themselves to the a hitch of the car and, and they are driving down the road with these chains and these uh, uh, big uh, pipes just slamming against everything and they say, and that's what we call a big drag. No, that's literally the name we call it. That's what he says. That's the official name. But whatever the insurance's company slogan is, their goal is to get you to trust them and their problem. And I don't know what company you have as your insurer, but if you, per se, get in an accident sometime recently, I want you to call all of these companies, regardless of who yours is, and ask them if they're going to help you fix your problem. If maybe you have Geico, I want you to call Farmers Insurance and say, Hey, I had a guy hit me on the side of the road today and, and I was just wondering if you've seen a thing or two and maybe you can help me fix a thing or two. And I want you to see how well that goes over. I want you to call Allstate and say, Hey, your guy Mayhem, he showed up. Can you help me fix Mayhem? Now, not a reasonable person in this room would expect an insurance company that we have no affiliation with, we've not been paying any, any sort of premium or anything like that, nobody would expect them to cover the situation. You know why? Because insurance companies don't fix things they're thrown into the middle of. They want to be there before the problem ever exists. Sometimes we, we don't give God the same benefit of the doubt. We use God as our fire escape. We use God as, as the one that we go to when we can't have any more answers. We've worn out our solutions and we've kind of reasoned out all of our logic and now we're just, a, we're treading water, no other options, and we say, now it's time to get God in the situation. God doesn't want to be in the middle of your problem. He wants to be there before the problem ever began. This morning as we study the children of Israel, that's exactly what they do. They go to war without God's presence. They go to war without God's blessing. And sure enough, they get their tails handed to them. And they come back and they say, man, we're in the middle of a problem and, and we can't beat them. We can't, we can't overcome them. So maybe we should get God in the middle of this situation. And you know what the saddest part is? They were probably very proud of themselves for arriving at that decision. Wow, that was a super spiritual answer, Jim. Thanks for suggesting that. Let's get God here. It's not spiritual to throw God in the middle of your problems. It's spiritual to have God the whole time. We find them throwing God right in the middle of the situation. And in this particular case, God does not fix their problem. This morning, I want to learn a few things from them. And I want to see what we can apply to our life. So this morning, if you'll look at your Bibles, we'll notice in verse number 2 that they entered into a losing proposition. The Bible tells us who they're fighting. They fought the Philistines. And they had gone to battle without God's blessing. They had gone to battle, at least as far as the Bible is concerned, never tells us of seeking God in prayer or asking for His blessing on this. And uh, whether you know this or not from your Bible... Uh, History teaches us that the Philistines were actually probably the children of Israel's most formidable opponent. Uh, the children of Ammon and uh, uh, the Moabites, they didn't have technology like the Philistines had. In fact, 
The Philistines, most people believe, came from the Isle of Crete. They would have been connected to Greece and therefore they had technology that the children of Israel simply did not have. They were the first of the enemies of the children of Israel to have iron. Therefore, they're fighting with uh, technologically advanced weaponry and they had a heavier armor and better chariots than the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went into this battle knowing full well they were outclassed. I got news for you. Every day we wake up and head into a world that is bigger, worse, and stronger than we are. We face an adversary that is far more powerful than us. And yet so many Christians get up every morning and head into battle without taking account that God is not in it with them. What a shame it is when we head into losing propositions. But God wanted to make Israel victorious. That was always His plan. Even in the Abrahamic covenant, God wanted to bless the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10 says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be any after me. And just a few verses later, God says this to the children of Israel, This people I have made for, I have formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. God wanted to bless the children of Israel so mightily that every other nation would look at them and say, wow, how is God doing that through that little bitty nation? That was his plan the whole time. In fact, he told Joshua, Joshua, if you'll walk with me and if you'll honor me, there shall not be a man be able to stand against you your entire life. That means no enemy that you come across will be more powerful than you. That was God's plan for Israel. It doesn't matter if they had iron chariots. It doesn't matter if they had better weapons. It doesn't matter if they had bigger walls. God's plan was to bless Israel. And yet what happens here is they go into war unaware that God's blessing is not on them. And kind of what we th see throughout Scripture is Israel's situational prosperity was directly linked to their spiritual prosperity. When everything was right at the temple, everything else was right everywhere else. When, when Israel was right with God spiritually, everything else fell into place. Jericho, y'all remember Jericho when the walls were mighty and they said, how can we go against this great city? The first battle that they faced as they came into Canaan land and yet God did a great miracle there. Why? Well, because they were right with Him first and foremost. They were right with God, so God made their situations right. If you study the context of 1 Samuel, early on in the book you find that they are not right spiritually. Eli is supposed to be the spiritual man. And Eli, I do believe, was a spiritual man. The only problem was he overlooked the sins of his sons. And it's easy sometimes, we have to be careful of this, not to... Uh, teenagers right there... Y'all want to pay attention to me? Yeah, right here? Y'all want to help me out? Okay, I appreciate that. Thank y'all. 
Sorry, I'm a youth director first and foremost, and I just want to make sure that the teenagers are listening to me. Don't want to... Amen. All right, thank you. I appreciate that, Brother Turner. Everybody else got mad at me, but me and you, Brother Turner, we'll, we'll go... We'll make this church work, all right? But, but if, if you study it, the Bible teaches us that Eli was a pretty spiritual guy, but the problem was his sons were sons of Belial. They were wicked as wicked could be. In fact, they had made the offering of the Lord an abomination. What they would do is people would come and they'd bring their offering to the Lord and they were following scriptural commands. And yet uh, the sons of Eli, they would say, hey, before you offer that, why don't you give some to us? And then they would say, no, well, we can't do that. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And in fact, the Bible says they kind of set up like a, a spiritual mafia, if you will, because he said... If you don't give it to me, I'm going to take it anyway. And they were, they were religious bullies. Not only that, but there were ladies and women that would serve at the tabernacle there. And Eli, or, or Hophni and Phinehas, they would uh, lay with those women. And they were just immoral. They were wicked. And they really represented the way Israel was. And Israel, full well knowing they're not right with God, goes into war. Christian, if you know you're not right with God, let me just say this. Don't enter into any battles. The Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? It says nothing about if God is not on our side, who can be against us? I don't want to enter into a single day of my life without knowing God is on my side. And yet Israel entered into this losing proposition I want you to notice secondly with me in verses 3 and 4, a last resort. Well, after they get their tails handed to them for a little while, uh, the Bible tells us that there were uh, several thousand men that were slain, 4,000 men in verse number 2. We see that they come to their final stage, their last resort. The Bible says in verse number 3, And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today... Uh, before the Philistines, let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. I want you to notice two things with me quickly. Number one, this was their second choice. God wasn't their first choice. Trusting in the Lord, trusting in His power, trusting in His ability to deliver them, that wasn't their first choice. Their first choice was to go at it alone. You know why? You know why we ever go at things without God's presence? It's so that we can feel accomplished when we win. If they could go beat the Philistines, well, man, that, that meant something. That was, that was them doing it. It's a very prideful pursuit when we enter into battle alone. It was their second choice. Not only was it their second choice, I want you to notice their shaky faith. Uh, look at verse number 3, what it says. Uh, Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us. <laughs> it may save us. Even in their last resort, they didn't have complete confidence that God was able to deliver them. When we go to God in this manner, when we say... I'm out of options. Lord, I've tried everything I know to do. I didn't get you in on it earlier, but Lord, I'm now at the end of my rope and I'm just trusting in you. What we're doing is we're going to God out of fear and not faith. 
Even the lost world gets spiritual in hard times. And let me put it to you like this. If I came to you today and said, your house is on fire. Now maybe you would be interested to evaluate how bad of a fire it was. Maybe, maybe let's just say some papers caught on fire in your home and, and you could get a bucket of water and put out the fire. And, and that's one way of doing it. Or you could call, I don't know, the experts in fighting fires and, and maybe call firefighters. That's they're named after their career choice. And they fight fires for a living. And you, you might call them and say, hey, my house is on fire. You know who calls firefighters? Everyone who needs a firefighter. Okay. I guess fought would be the proper terminology there. But this is not in my notes. We're out on a limb here and I'm not sure. So you call a firefighter when you need a fire fought. That that sounds more appropriate. Yeah, that's better. Maybe, maybe there's somebody in here who says, no, I can do it. No, I can do it. And that's fine. That's your choice. Hey, it's your house. But everyone calls the firefighters. You know what I've seen in my just few years in ministry? I've seen funerals inside this building of of people and of families who were primarily lost people. They would not claim to be saved. They would not identify as being believers. And even in hard times, lost people will say things like this. Hey, we're praying for you. Well, who are you praying to? You don't know God. You don't claim God. Who are you praying to? To say spiritual things and to turn to God in the last resort of your situation does not show spiritual maturity. To think that you finally accomplished something because you finally handed over to God. No, 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 no. Spiritual maturity is saying, God, I need you today. And if I get in a problem, help me get out of the problem. Not, God, I'm neck deep in my problem. Maybe you can help me fodded my problem. we, We think that we have arrived spiritually when we use God as our last resort. But you know what I think it is? It's an insult to God. When we choose to go to Him out of the fear of our problem instead of the faith in His power. Not only will we see a losing proposition and a last resort, I want you to see, secondly, a loud celebration. A loud celebration. Verse number 5, we see, in the, When the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. They don't know if this is going to work. I mean, this is, like we said, their last resort. But everybody's pretty excited about it. I mean, so much so that when the ark does arrive, they say, Oh, good, we we can finally win. This is awesome. They all began to shout. And the Bible says so much so that the earth began to shake. and, And the Philistines heard and were worried about what was going to happen. There was a great shout because God was now involved. I watch survival shows 
pretty frequently. I think they're interesting. I hope that I never get caught in a survival situation because, frankly, I don't want to be in a survival situation. But I do find it interesting. And any time you watch a survival show where maybe uh, in, in, in like the northern part of the United States or maybe in Alaska, a lot of times there will be a predator there uh, and sometimes it's a bear. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but basically the way that people fight bear attacks or like when they come across a bear, the way you are instructed to kind of deal with the situation, don't run because they can run faster than you. The, the way you're instructed to deal with the situation is, is you make yourself as big as you can and you make as much noise as you can. So a lot of people, they'll, they'll say something like this, Hey bear! Hey bear! And they'll make themselves look really big. But behind that shout is fear and no confidence. If that bear only knew that, the bear would not run away. But, but we, we sound like we hey bear, hey bear, you don't want none of me. And the bear's like, well, you're like a buck 80 and I'm like 500 pounds. I could eat you with one bite. Uh, but hey bear. But inside, even the most trained survivalists, their heart gets to pumping because they know if that bear chooses to come down the path, they don't stand a chance. Behind that scream is a coward. You know what's happening here? The children of Israel have turned to God as a last resort, and now they're shouting as if it's going to do something. But at the end of the day, behind these screams are fear and a lack of courage. They're empty. And Charles Spurgeon said about this particular verse, he said, Now, beloved... When you are worshiping God, shout if you are filled with holy gladness. If the shout comes with your heart, I would not ask you to restrain it. God forbid that we should judge any man's worship, but do not be so foolish as to suppose that because there is a loud noise, there must also be faith. Faith is a still water. It flows deep. True faith in God may express itself with leaping and with shouting, and it is a happy thing when it does. But it can also sit still before the Lord, and that perhaps is a happier thing still. A lot of Christians in their crisis, what they do is they become uber-spiritual. They begin to post Bible verses on their Facebook page. I mean, they don't do this 88 other percent of the time. But when they're in their problem, the, the Lord shall keep his, uh, him that his mind stayed on them in perfect peace. I mean, they post verses like this. And everybody knows when they're going through something because they're posting Bible verses. And they're saying, hey, can everyone pray for me? I mean, this is just a really hard time. Where was the faith the whole time? What we do is we thrust God in the middle of our situation. We, we start to speak in over-bubbly spiritual lingo. And what we are, we are a loud shout backed by fear. Knowing that if God doesn't rescue us, there is no rescue. Knowing that if we don't have God's deliverance, we stay in our problem. There's a loud celebration. 
And we'll notice, fourthly, and we have plenty of time to cover the point, fourthly, a lost possession. Now, you can look in verse number 11 and find quickly that they lost uh, a few things. Number one, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. The Bible says in verse 11, the Ark of God was taken, which is a sad thing, as the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. It actually signified God's throne and where God's ark was, there God was. And the fact that the enemy now possessed the Ark of the Covenant was a very sad thing. In fact, it was this news, along with the following news, that killed Eli. In fact, you'll see in verse number 11, the Bible says, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. Have you ever heard of the term addition by subtraction? This was a good loss, okay? These were wicked, wicked men in positions that were supposed to be spiritual. And this was a, a, maybe a, an addition by subtraction. But they lost a few things. But I would suggest to you that they lost something even, maybe not greater than the Ark of the Covenant, but at least equal to. I want you to notice with me in verse number 7. The way the enemy viewed our God... Verse number 7, the Bible says, And the Philistines were afraid. Now that God was in the camp, they were afraid. Now that God was there, they were in trouble. They have more technology, they have more men, they have the advantage, and yet God's now involved, and the Bible says they became afraid. Amen. Man, that's the way our enemies ought to be. Our enemies not be afraid of us, but our enemies ought to fear our God. Because our God is powerful and when, when our enemies hear that God's working on our side, it ought to put a holy reverential fear in them that the God of the universe is working in and through our lives. The enemy's trembling now in terror. I want you to see, secondly, the talk of the enemy in verse number 7. God is coming into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Notice this, the enemy realizes when God is with you and when God is not with you. They say, God's come into the camp now. This wasn't the case before. Well, how did they know? Because they could recognize powerless Christians. They could recognize people that were fighting a fight without God's, God's help on their side. And what we see is they say, this is a real problem. Now God is with them. He hasn't been with them the whole time, but now God is on their side. We see the terror of the enemy, the talk of the enemy, and number three, the trust of the enemy. Look in verse number eight. The Bible says, Woe unto us! Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Did you know that the Philistines were a very spiritual people? Did you know that they had gods themselves? In fact, one of their gods was named Dagon. He was a merman of sorts. He was half man, half fish. Which, by the way, is weird. But, but that, that was their god. I mean, they were a very spiritual people. And yet, when they put the God of Israel in comparison to their gods that they served, they, there was not one person in the group that said, Oh, well, Dagon will take care of us. Oh, Dagon can beat their God. No, nobody thought that because they recognized God was more powerful. I read this and I'll share it with you as well. 
in the Philistines' case, the problem was not knowledge that God was powerful or that the knowledge that God could deliver. The problem was their submission. That's the way it is in Christians' lives. Is, is It's not knowledge that God truly is who He is. And it's not knowledge that He's worthy of our, our service and He's worthy of our love and devotion and our commitment. That's not the question. The question is whether we will submit to Him or not. Children of Israel had God, of the God of Israel, and yet the Philistines compared their gods to them and said, who can deliver us out of the hands of these gods? These are the gods which deliver the children of Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians and smote them with plagues. And that's what the children of Israel lost. Oh, sure, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. They lost two uh, a priest that were, weren't worth much. But here's the most important thing that they lost to me. Their enemy no longer respected God. I mean, they just beat him. And if you study chapter 5, what happens now is the children of Israel go back and they run. And the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they didn't know what to do with it, so they placed it in their temple. At the feet of their God. God doesn't belong at the feet of any other God. And yet because of the children of Israel's actions, that's where he ended up. What a shame when, when we treat God like this. And by the way, the world takes note when we show no faith before and we start showing faith in our problem. The world notices. In late 1970s, an archaeological dig performed by Tel Aviv University just east of Israel found three grain silos. These silos would have been a place where they would keep seed. They were hewn out of rock. As they discovered more and more, they noticed on the side of one of these silos was actually some writing. And it had been carved into the rock. The writing wasn't a substantial amount. It was only about the size of a man's hand, but it was three different lines clearly written out on the rock. And, and obviously age had made it difficult to read, but as they began to study it out, they began to do all that they could to enhance the writing. What they found is that writing was actually in reference to the battle that we're reading about. In fact, that writing is the earliest known extra-biblical source that confirms biblical record. In fact, it mentions the fact that uh, Phineas died. It mentions the fact that the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. It, it mentions all of the battle. And, 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 and now that, that piece of rock is displayed in a museum in Israel. You say, why are you, why are you mentioning that other than the fact that it's cool and applicable? I mention it because of this. The world never forgets when we thrust God into the middle of our problem. You know what they say? They say, well, where's your God been the whole time? You're not fooling me with this faux Christianity. You're not fooling me with the fact that now you're super spiritual when you don't have any other answers. I mean, you've tried everything else and now you turn to God in the last ditch effort. You're not fooling the world the world never forgets that type of Christianity. Now, please do not misunderstand me today. 
God wants to help you in your problem. The Bible says this in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. That word stayed means established and sustained. It does not speak of getting in a problem and asking God to help you and then God fixing the problem. It's speaking of a person who places their faith and their trust and their life and devotion in God and his mind stays upon God and his mind is secured and sustained in God so that when troubles come, he will keep them in perfect peace. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. In my yard, I have a, a, a peach tree. And this peach tree is very small. Most of my other trees are, are kind of ugly. In fact, years ago when we cleared off the land, we did what every Texan does, and we just kind of pushed everything into one big pile and burn it. And so when we did that, a lot of the trees that we chose to keep overheated, and they, they kind of got scorched. And so a lot of my trees are not very pretty. But about a year ago now, two years ago at the most, we noticed one very small sprouting tree. And my mom, she knows a lot about uh, uh, plants and trees, specifically fruit trees. And she came over and she said, Andrew, that's a peach tree. I said, well, good. I finally have a tree that like, people would you know, look at and think is pretty and it'll produce fruit. Now, that's great. So every time that I would mow, I would always mow around the tree and, and we placed a barrel right beside the tree so that way when dad mowed my yard, he'd make sure not to just run over the tree. And, and so we, we preserved this tree. All last year, the tree had green leaves on it. It was actually pretty awesome. The tree grew a little bit over the winter and the spring. But this summer... I'm, I'm sad to say that the, the just excessive heat and the lack of rain, I hope that my tree is not dead, but my mom says that it is. It looks like it is. There's nothing on it. I mean, right now it looks like it's good for nothing but firewood. And I, I don't know the reason. I, I know that my mom has more established fruit trees in her yard, and they lived through it. Yet my little tree did not. You know why my little tree didn't make it? Because it wasn't established yet. It faced the same conditions that my mom's fruit trees did, but mine wasn't big enough. Jeremiah tells us that the man that places his trust in Christ is a man that will be like a tree that is established. You don't become established overnight, and you certainly don't become established right in the middle of your problem. There is not a problem represented in the room today too big for God to handle. It just depends on which point you want to put God in it. Jesus says... 
I am the Alpha and Omega. He starts things and finishes things. Hebrews tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If you study scripture, you never find Jesus in the middle of anything. God wants to be in your situation. But God wants to be in your situation before the situation becomes overwhelming. You know, the disciples, they were on a boat one day, the storms arose, but guess what? Jesus was in the boat from the shoreline. They said, Master, Master, carest carest thou not that we perish? What did he do? He got up and fixed the problem. But he was in the boat the whole time. This morning, Christ wants to help you. God wants to fix your problem, but he does not want to be thrust into the middle of your problem.